Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that You do search our hearts and You know us through and through. What a terrifying thought it is for us that You know our secrets until we remember that You have promised to be a Heavenly Father to those who trust You, a Savior to those who seek You, a friend to those who need You. We thank You that in Jesus Christ You have shone the light of Your countenance upon us in order to give us shalom, to bring us into Your presence, that we may have boldness and confidence to call You our Father, because we know that for us in Christ there is now no condemnation, and that nothing, nothing can ever separate us from Your love in Jesus Christ. And so, our Father, in that security, we are bold to pray that You would teach us everything that You have to teach us, and that where You have made an end of teaching by Your grace, we may be humble to make an end of learning and fall before You in wonder and adoration and praise and confess how great You are. So come to us, Lord, by Your Spirit and through Your Word, and teach us, we pray, as though You spoke to us out of Your very mouth, that we may say with our Lord Jesus that we will live not by bread alone, but by every mouth, every word that proceeds from Your mouth. Hear us, help us, we pray, for Jesus our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now we're turning again to Romans chapter 9, where we have been now for a few weeks, and we come this evening to verses 19 through 29. You'll find the passage in the Pew Bible on page 945, and it will be helpful, I think, to you again to have the passage open before you so that we may follow along together in this extraordinary part of God's Word. The Apostle Paul, as we have seen in verse 2, is profoundly anguished. He explains to us only at the beginning of chapter 10 why it is that he is so anguished. It is because he is burdened that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are not saved. Many of us perhaps have relatives who are not Christians, and we are burdened for them. Paul was burdened for his relatives, but he was all the more burdened about God, because God had promised to Abraham that he would make an everlasting covenant with him and with his seed. And so Paul has a double anguish, the anguish of relatives and friends who have not come to faith in the Messiah, and this challenge to the gospel that uh, God had promised salvation to His people, and His people were not being saved. And so he raises, you remember, questions, and he comes essentially to the third of these. God has said, he will have mercy 
on whom he will have mercy. He will judge sinners, and he will sovereignly have compassion on those on whom he will have compassion and mercy. And right at the end there of verse 18, the words that lead on to the question that Paul now raises, he is mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? If he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and hardens whom he will harden, why then does he find fault? For who can resist his will? And now Paul's answer. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, remember the promise to Abraham, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Well, as you know, over these months, I have used one or two different word pictures to describe what it is like to study this remarkable book of Romans. And I think probably I've used two more than any other. The first has been the word picture of climbing Mount Everest and seeing the magnificent scenery that uh, presumably on a clear day you feel on Everest that you can see forever. But then discovering as we've especially moved into chapter 9 that there are places where ordinary mortals are not able to go without a considerable supply of oxygen. Try to grapple with Romans chapter 9, and you need all the spiritual oxygen that God will give you. There is something intellectually rigorous and emotionally exhausting, as well as personally challenging, about Romans chapter 9. 
But the other word picture I've used is the picture of a symphony or perhaps a, a great Shakespearean drama where themes that emerge at the beginning are then, as it were, placed aside and taken up later on. And it's important for us to see that as we are considering Romans chapter 9. Some Christians come to these chapters and they say, where did all this come from? The Apostle Paul suddenly starts speaking about the fact that the Jewish people have not come to faith in their promised Messiah. And he works this through. Is, is this as some people have even had the audacity to think just an old sermon that the Apostle Paul had to hand and thought, well, I might slip this in here. It might be interesting for people to hear this old sermon. No, the truth of the matter is that the very things with which he's dealing here are things that he has already touched on earlier in the letter. And this has been very characteristic of him. When he had spoken about man's sinful condition in chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, he had then returned to that in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, to explain to us that there was a profound mystery behind all that. Our corporate fallenness and sinfulness in the transgression of our father Adam. And similarly, when he had raised our spirits with the knowledge that in Jesus Christ there is justification and there is peace with God and there is the hope of glory. Then he had returned, you remember, in chapter 8, and he had begun to work this out in a glorious crescendo in which he himself seemed to be filled with so much confidence. He, he seems to feel he can take on the whole universe so long as he is in Christ and knows that nothing will ever separate him from the love of God in Jesus Christ. But it's interesting for us to notice that the themes he is discussing here in chapters 9 and 10 and 11 are also themes that he had relatively recently discussed. Now I look this up. The truth is that it was 15 months ago that we were studying in Romans chapter 2 and 3. But if we had been there when Paul's letter was read out to the Romans, we wouldn't have been thinking, how does he expect me to remember something he said 15 months ago? He had only said it to us in his letter 20 minutes ago. And I wonder if you remember how he had spoken about these very things earlier on. And had emphasized, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 28, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, a true Jew, a true descendant of Abraham is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. And then he'd even gone on to say in chapter 3, verse 5, asking a question that recurs in chapter 9. If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. That is to say, if the righteousness of God shines brightly in the context of his response to my unrighteousness, 
Shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And then his favorite answer, that those of us who are old enough to remember using the King James Version used to read as his, God forbid, by no means. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And then you see he almost leaves it. It's as though he's saying, you're not ready for the answer yet. I've got, I've got much to say to you. I need to rush on to the next thing. But hold that thought. Now, you couldn't hold that thought for 15 months. I don't suppose many of us have been sitting the last 15 months saying, when is Paul going to go back to answer that question? But he'd really only asked it 20 minutes ago. Those 15 months, they're not really 15 months. You're imagining 15 months. They were only 20 minutes ago. You're imagining hours and hours of studying Romans, but it's only been 20 minutes in real Romans time. And so now you see he's coming back to these questions, and he'd, he'd hinted to us that when the riches and fullness of the gospel begins to grip us and dawn upon us, then we begin to be ready for the answers to the questions. Question number one, you remember? Has God's word failed? He promised to Abraham that in his seed there would be salvation. Has God's word of promise failed? No, Paul's answer is. Because right from the very beginning, God's word of promise has been a distinguishing, discriminating promise. It was made through Isaac, but not through Ishmael. It was made through Jacob, but not through Esau. And indeed, as we saw in Paul's brilliant argument, the proof that God was sovereignly working in this is that Jacob and Esau were sons of the same mother, were actually in the same womb, and that God's purpose preceded anything that they had actually done. As though he were saying, there was nothing in Jacob to qualify him to receive God's grace. It was only God's grace. And then we saw, of course, we saw the question that then arises. Does that mean that God is unjust? And he goes back again to the Scriptures to show us it's, that none of us can stand before God and say, the only thing I want from you is justice for all of us. Because justice for all or any of us leads to the divine judgment of God, the outer darkness of which our Lord Jesus Christ speaks. And it's still amazing that men and women still make a fist in the face of God and say, I want justice from you. Oh, no, he says, what you need is God's mercy. And because we are sinners, he says, God has this right. Think about Pharaoh. God has this right 
to show his wrath upon Pharaoh and yet have mercy upon whomsoever he wills. You see, we are so indoctrinated, unfortunately, with the notion that not just in civil matters, but in spiritual matters, we have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we've, we've forfeited all of those rights. The person who is on death row tonight does not have any rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness according to the law of many states. Isn't that right? And Paul has been urging on us, especially in these massive opening chapters, that's what we are before God. And therefore our only hope is His mercy. And so, says Paul, these words that shatter human pride, he has mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and he hardens whom he will harden. Now, those are not the words of St. Augustine, nor the words of John Calvin, nor the words of George Whitfield, but the words of the Apostle Paul. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. Now, just as I said last week, so I say again this week, the proof that that is exactly what Paul is teaching us is found in the question that follows. Do you see what it is? The question that follows is, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, you see, if Paul had said, now the situation is this, that there are just some people who harden their hearts against God and he judges them, but there are other people and there's something about them that makes them different from those people. They're just the kind of people that when the gospel is presented to them, there's something in them that is, in a sense, is they've prepared themselves. Apart from the fact that Paul teaches elsewhere man is dead and his trespasses and sins, is a spiritual corpse, and therefore can't prepare himself for anything. You see what that means. If God, if God said, now the really wicked ones the Genghis Khans and the Adolf Hitlers, I will harden and condemn them. But anyone who gets above 50%, that's a different matter. Nobody would turn around, probably not even Genghis Khan, and say, why does he still find fault? You see, whenever people try to dilute the overwhelming force of what the Apostle Paul says here, they destroy the logic of the whole passage. And you see, what has happened now is that Paul, as somebody, as it were, mentally in his congregation who is furious 
at what he is saying. How dare you say this, he's saying. How dare God do this? Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Now, this is not the response of a seeking Christian believer who says, I think this is beyond me. Or, can you shed more light on this, Paul, from the Scriptures? This is somebody who, faced with the sovereignty of God to show mercy or to show judgment, rebels against Him because He is God. And the proof of that is in the language Paul uses. Do you notice that? Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Not, dear, dear, sensitive, needy soul, are you inquiring about the mysteries of God? No, this is back talk. You see, what is in view here ultimately, and ultimately this is what is always in view, as even Friedrich Nietzsche understood, actually particularly Friedrich Nietzsche understood, when he said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? And this is this individual. How dare God teach me this? How dare God do this? Who does he think he is? He's giving me no chance. It's not my fault. And you notice what Paul's answer is. Actually, it comes in two pieces. It comes in a very direct statement. On the one hand, you'll notice here, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And then it comes in a very rigorous, logical, gospel exposition. Now, what's he saying while he's saying this? He's giving, in the first part of verse 20, a firm rebuke. And he's saying, you have forgotten who you are. Now, that's the essential problem. Who do you think you are, mere man, to answer back to God? More significantly, you have not only forgotten who you are, little man, you have forgotten who God is, the infinitely great God who made the heavens and the earth, who spoke the planets into being, who imagined and then spoke the wonders of this world, visible and as yet still invisible, this extraordinary universe about whom the first chapter of the Bible, speaking about what He has done, almost like a throw-off line. Do you remember this in Genesis 116 as a throwaway line. Incidentally, he also made the stars. The God who is simply beyond my ability to comprehend in the sheer majesty of his being, the genius of his mind, the eternity of his person, the grandeur of his works, the longevity of his care, the matchlessness of his providence. 
and this little man who is further distanced from this infinite God than the tiny ant that he would squash with his big toe dares to say to God, let me teach you a thing or two about the kind of God you ought to be because the first obligation you have is to treat me exactly the way I want to be treated and not the way I deserve to be treated. And Paul is very serious and stern with such a foolish man And we live in a world of such foolish men and women. And we need to catch something of Paul's sense of the greatness of our God. He's not intimidated by this. If you have a small God, you are intimidated. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. God will come because he's really sorry he's offended you. God is really embarrassed about saying the wrong thing. No, no. It's who are you, O man, to answer back to God. And you see, he's already plowed into us who this man is. He's a rebel. He's a transgressor. He's a deceiver. He deserves to be crushed into the soil because he's despised God's glory. Are you, O man, saying to God, because of who I am, God, you should empty heaven of its greatest treasure, send that treasure to earth in desperate weakness, lowliness, humiliation, to be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces, despised and not esteemed, and then crushed, upon the cross of Calvary, are you, are you, O man, saying, God should do that kind of thing for me because I am worth it? Many of you know the name of the late John Gerstner, about whom stories abound. One of my favorites is this that the late James Boyce told me that at, I think, one of the PCRT conferences... Dr. Gerstner spoke about the depravity of man and said, man is a rat. And at the question and answer session, he received a furious response and an insistence that Dr. Gerstner should apologize for such an outrageous statement. Dr. Gerstner came to the podium and he said, I do. This man is quite right. I do apologize to the rats, to the rats, because you see anything a rat does wrong is because of what man has done wrong. And Paul, by standing God's ground. That's what he's doing. Paul has got gospel spine and backbone. Alas, so different from so many of the ecclesiastical leaders who claim succession from him, who bend in the wind and apologize 
to puny man. For Almighty God, oh, God never meant to offend you. God never meant to say anything that would hurt you. God really wants, God really wants you to understand that He's really, really sorry that He messed up in speaking to you in this way. Down peacock's feathers is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Down, down, down. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And the answer is, you're nothing. As Martin Luther used to say, God made the cosmos out of nothing. And He'll not make anything of you until you realize you're nothing. You're a deceived, self-deceiving, deceiving sinner, rebel with a hard heart. You do not give all your powers and energies to the one who is the passion of God's heart. You say to God, I don't give a rap that he was crucified on the cross. I despise him and I will not turn to you through him. Do you expect him to come to you and say, I'm terribly sorry about that. But it's okay that you despise my son. This is the infinite God, my friends. The man or woman who despises my son. And this is the infinite God. Somebody despises your wife, do you say to them, I'm so sorry I got angry with you. It was quite all right what you did. And that's where we are sometimes in the church of God. God help us. And we need this kind of spine that's brave enough and bold enough to stare people in the face and say, you little man, you know absolutely nothing about either God or yourself. It's overwhelming, isn't it? It is absolutely overwhelming. And then you see to follow this through. He gives us Following his firm rebuke, he gives a very powerful illustration. He uses the illustration of the potter and the clay. Now, that illustration, you're probably most familiar with it from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, where God, as it were, sends Jeremiah down to the potter's house to learn how God is able to work on the clay. But it's actually more the thought of Isaiah that Paul seems to have in mind because Isaiah uses this notion of the clay answering back to God. The clay, you would be surprised if that happened, those of you who are potters or even painters or even golfers. If your golf ball turned to you and said, don't you dare teach me this. Don't you dare hit me like that. Or your, your clay just an illustration, isn't it? He's saying the distance between the potter and the clay is so great that the potter has the right to do whatever he wants with the clay. Now, of course, when this applies to God, 
Paul's understanding is that whatever God does with the clay, God will do with perfect righteousness. We need have no doubt about that, no hesitation about that, that God will treat the clay, and we are clay actually, aren't we? We're made of dust. We came from dust. We're just clay. And now we're marred clay. He spent section after section demonstrating to us how profoundly sinful we are. There is no good in us. We're rebels against Him. And so He says, Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? That's the case, isn't it? That may humble me into the dust and make my mind real, but that's the truth. God has every right to send every single person in this room to a lost eternity. And for the angels of heaven to sing, just and holy are your ways. He has every right to do that. And until I grasp that about myself, I've not really begun to grasp how glorious the gospel is. And that's why I don't have much courage when I face this man. I've too small a gospel and too small a God to face this man. But that is God's right. And that's what Paul is saying. But there's more. God's judgment is real. But it's not mindless. And so Paul raises this thought. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, think Pharaoh. Just put Pharaoh into this. What if God, desiring to show His wrath against Pharaoh and to make known His power in what He does with Pharaoh, endures with much patience this vessel of wrath called Pharaoh, who is prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Think Israel. Think Moses and Aaron and Miriam which He has prepared beforehand for glory. See what He's saying? It's really breathtaking, isn't it? You think if this is true, if man is really like this, so hostile to God, why does God not simply obliterate? Because against this dark backcloth, He wants to do something almost unbelievably spectacular. He wants to take this little people who have become slaves 
in Egypt who have no power, no hope, no rights. And he wants to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey and deliver them from the greatest nation in the world, the most powerful nation in the ancient Near East. And what he's going to do is he's going to endure with much patience this man Pharaoh who is a hardened-hearted sinner and a vessel of wrath. He's going to endure him with much patience. He can snuff him out with the first plague, but he endures. And the second plague and the third plague and the fourth plague and this man's fist tighten against God and he does what sinful man always does. He says, it wasn't really a judgment of God. It was just an accident in my life. And only a little while before he'd been saying, if, if I get through this, I'll give my whole life to God. And he gets through it and uh, he's back to where you and I go. Oh, it's just a circumstance. Oh, glad I'm through that. And he hardens his heart more. And as he hardens his heart, God's word comes to him. And God's word begins to harden his heart. It's a terrible thing, my friends, but you find it every time the Word of God is preached. People harden their hearts, and God actually walks that hardness harder into their hearts by the Word of hope and mercy and promise. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. The gospel actually hardens men's hearts. It's so terrible to think about it. It can happen. Would you want to be a preacher of the gospel knowing that's what happens? But you see it on people's faces. You see it in the indifference of their lives. You see it in their lack of passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. It abounds in men and women who hear the word of God preached. That the very preaching of the word of God hardens their hearts. And they want to resist it. And in the resisting of it, they harden their hearts even more. And that's what happened with Pharaoh in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And then he applies it contemporaneously. What a thing. Even as whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now you notice, and this is an imponderable, you notice that in verse 22, he speaks about these vessels that have been prepared for destruction. And he doesn't say who prepared them for destruction. So we probably shouldn't ask. Don't ask the Bible questions. The Bible has no intention of answering. All he wants to say to us is that this is not an accident. They have been prepared for destruction. But you notice when he turns to those he calls the vessels of mercy, he says they have been prepared 
beforehand by God. Little difference there. He says quite specifically, this is, this is something only God can do. And he does it beforehand for vessels of mercy. And you know, if you become a Christian, you have some sense of that. You have some sense that uh, it wasn't, as people sometimes crazily say, it wasn't my own free will. Actually, one reason we know that people know better than that who are Christians is because you never hear a Christian believer, no matter how confused his thinking may be, coming to God, for example, for an unconverted relative for whom he's burdened, and saying, oh Lord, I don't want you to go too near, but my real concern is that somehow or another Uncle Jim will use his free will. You don't even hear people who believe that praying that way. You hear people who believe that saying, oh God, break into his life. Oh, God, humble him. Oh, God, touch him. Do something. Oh, God, anything but save him. So we understand this. That we wouldn't trust in the Lord or love the Lord Jesus Christ unless we were vessels of mercy that he had prepared beforehand. And then, of course, you notice he moves from his firm rebuke and his powerful illustration to some biblical quotations. The first from Hosea, in which he applies what Hosea says from God to the northern kingdom. You remember Hosea's family story and how his children were given names, prophetic names, and how God came in his mercy and said, I will call those who are now called not my people, I will call them my people. And he's applying this. It looks as though he's applying this to the new Israel, which is composed of Jews and Gentiles. And God has been merciful to Gentiles, you and I, who were not his people and who have now become his people. And then he says... And the Old Testament Scriptures also teach us that only a remnant of Israel will be saved. This isn't a surprise to God. This isn't messing up His plan. This doesn't mean God is stretching His head in heaven and saying, now I better go to plan B. This was prophesied centuries ago. And so His word to us is, that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And there's no other explanation. There is no other explanation as to why he will have mercy than this. He will have mercy. And it's at that point that the great challenge comes to my soul, whether to bow before him and to say to him, Lord God of heaven, that is exactly what I need. Or to say, I am bigger than you, 
and I will face you down. Don't dream of even thinking to say that. Now, I've got five questions. And I hope there's enough oxygen in your tank. I'm only going to ask them. Question number one. Do you see that Paul has proved his point? God's word has not failed. He's proved his point. Second, do you see what the point is? Because the point is that by nature I look through the wrong end of the telescope. The real wonder, and this is what Paul is saying to us all the way through the book of Romans, the real wonder is not that any should be lost and condemned. The real wonder is that any single human being should be saved, especially at the cost of that salvation. That's the wonder. And we feel that, don't we? I hope we feel that. It is a sheer wonder to be saved. There is no explanation in me. I will need to go on saying this to the end of my ministry in this place, my friends, to myself and to you. There is no explanation in you. He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. It's not because you've qualified yourself. It's not because of what you have done, but because of His great mercy. Third question. Do you see, and this is important, do you see that Paul is not explaining everything? I love those words of John Calvin when he says, where God makes an end of teaching, we make an end of learning. Where God says, I'm not telling you anymore, we say to him sweetly, well, you know best. You know what is best for me. Do you remember Deuteronomy 29, 29? If you don't know that verse, go home and memorize that verse tonight. There are hidden things that belong only to the Lord, and there are things that he reveals which are for us and for our children. And He doesn't reveal everything to us. He doesn't explain everything to us because He's God. There was a typo, incidentally, in our morning order of worship. Did you see it? There was a sentence of capital letters. And then God... I don't know why I didn't notice it. God was in small letters. That's where many Christians are. Question number four. Do you see how we tend to confuse two things? Paul is speaking here about God, and we keep asking him questions about me. Because for some reason, we can't bear 
to let God be God and speak about himself. And question number five, do you see how this gospel crushes human pride? I very much love the story of James Denny, who was a Scottish theologian of a century ago, who, lecturing on this theme, actually, had a student come into his room immediately after the lecture, and uh, that's an almost fatal thing to do, at least it was in those days, in a Scottish university. When we were university students, if anyone put their hand up to ask a question, we knew they were visiting Americans. And this student, a boy, a mere boy, came into Denny's room and said, Professor Denny, there were some things in that lecture of yours about the divine purpose and the divine sovereignty that I didn't understand. And Denny said to him very quietly, Young man, since that lecture was about Almighty God. And you are one of his very young and very small creatures. I am not surprised that there were some things that you didn't understand. Do you know the strange thing about this? is when you bend under it. You feel far better than you've ever felt in all your life because you've discovered where you really belong before Him. Amazed that He should have had mercy on you. So, let's go down that we may go up. Heavenly Father, we do need oxygen to sustain breath as our self-will and our self-exaltation is humbled, and as the hardness of our hearts is exposed, and our lack of love for You, and lack of passion for Your glory, and lack of desire for Your Son is exposed to us by Your Word, we bow before You, and we know that our only hope is in Jesus Christ, and that You would have mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. Nothing in our hands we bring. Not our education, nor our accomplishments, nor our decency, nor our church membership, nor even holding office or being a minister in a church of Jesus Christ. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. Naked come to you for dress, Helpless look to you for grace. Foul we to Christ's fountain fly and say, Wash us, Saviour.
or we die. We thank you that in Jesus Christ you show us mercy and we bow with all our hearts before its majesty and grace. Receive us, we pray. Take us as we are. Lift us, we pray, into the ecstasy and joy and strength of knowing that we are yours and yours forever. And that you have had mercy upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.